This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Tom Hartman program, Real Time with Bill Maher, Counterspin, The Jimmy Dore Show, The Majority Report, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Young Turks, and All In with Chris Hayes. Michael Tomaski wrote this, or Tomaski, I'm, I'm not sure how he pronounces it. I think it's Tomaski, uh, for the uh, Daily Beast. And it's titled, Why Obama's Haters Are Worse Than Bush's Haters. And he, he gets, you know, uh, he gets into how, uh, and, and without quoting his, uh, his piece at length, you know, let me just summarize it in my own words because I, I, it was it, it was brilliant and, and it was uh, consistent with some things that I've said on this program in the past, and yet it was so concise it really crystallized it for me. And I wanted to share this with you and give credit to Michael for this. What he's suggesting in this article, or what what I got out of it, let me let me share this as as this was the insight that I got. I, I he may. His article may be more nuanced or less, and it may be, you know, the point of it may be something somewhat different than what I'm characterizing. So, but essentially was that when conservatives talk about liberals or even Democrats, like Obama, who is certainly no liberal, I mean, maybe he is deep down in his heart, but as President of the United States, he has behaved very much as a centrist, as a modern day centrist Democrat which 60 years ago would have been a centrist Republican. And I don't mean that as a criticism. It's just this is how it is. You know, nobody can accuse Obama of being like a socialist. I mean, there's not even a public option in Obamacare, for example. And he's, he's talked about being willing to, uh, you know, put the chain CPI on, on Social Security rather than expanding the program. Social Security, one of the few programs that you could actually argue is socialist. So... When conservatives characterize Democrats, they do it in the, in the context of culture. Our way of life is under siege. That person thinks differently than we do, lives differently than we do, has a different set of values than we do, is the other. Now, this is characteristic, and, and Tomaski doesn't get into this at all in his article, but I'm, I'm going to add this. This is characteristic of movements, conservative movements, worldwide and throughout history. The uber-conservative movement of the fascists, for example, in Italy or Spain. The, I'm not, I'm not going to even go to Germany because of the old saying about you lose the argument, but we can do this with others. The Pinochet you know, taking over in Chile. Who is he killing? I mean, he was literally executing people, throwing people out of helicopters, killed so many people in the national stadium. There are a lot of people who won't go to the soccer games in the national stadium because they think it's desecrating the memories of the, the mass murders that Pinochet held there. Pinochet, of course, you know, did this military coup. By the way, Michel, Michel Bachelet in Chile, they pronounce the T. Uh, Michel de Bachelet was uh, just elected along with a large enough 
uh, majority in the in the in the legislature in Chile that it looks like she's actually going to be able to get some good progressive left wing stuff going in Chile is a big deal because the previous president was a conservative and then the previous president before that was her and she couldn't get anything done because because the parliament stalled her so the people in Chile have said okay cool bring it back but I digress. Um, when you look at at the rationale that conservatives have, have historically used, whether it was Mussolini or Franco or or Pinochet, or the conservatives who were blowing up churches and and killing black kids in the South, the conservatives that made up the Ku Klux Klan, the conservatives that made up what used to be the Democratic Party back in the '30s all the way back to the mid-1800s, all throughout the 19th century, who, who promoted apartheid in the United States. Segregation now, segregation forever, right? It was a conservative position. I was a Democrat saying that, but he was a conservative Democrat, George Wallace and Lester Maddox. And those are the positions, you know, this Nixon's whole Southern strategy was, you know, LBJ threw those guys off the Democratic Party bus, by signing the Civil Rights Act, and so let's pick them up for the Republican Party, and they did. But anyhow, conservatives always frame the other side as being different culturally. Liberals, on the other hand, when they talk about the opposition, they don't talk about culture. They talk about politics. And this is his point about Obama's haters are worse than Bush's haters. Because when we, back during the Bush administration, we who disliked Bush, the Bush administration policies were criticizing Bush, we were not saying things like George Bush is, well, not all of us. <laughs> I guess in some ways I was saying you know, but but by and large, the the the, the Bush was like the, you know the next right winger. You know, he's taking us in a fascistic direction. But by and large, the Democratic critique of Bush was mostly we don't like his policies. We don't like the war. We don't like his tax cuts for rich people. You know, very specific things. We don't like these policies. Whereas the conservative critique of Obama tends to be the guy's a socialist. He's not really an American. Where's his birth certificate? Those kinds of things. And so the, you know, I, I just thought that was really interesting, that liberals, by and large, are not wired to view conservatives as something other than being fully human brothers and sisters. In fact, it's, it's wired into the liberal DNA. I mean, the closest I could get to this in my, in my criticisms of Bush, at my most extreme, was to say that he's probably a sociopath. In other words, he's one of us, but he's like defective, damaged goods. Whereas the conservative critique of liberals is they're not even one of us.
I know we can't establish a religious test for office, but if you believe we're living in the end times, like Michelle Bachman does, we get to take away the car keys. <laughs> yes, let Jesus take the wheel. If you think the world is about to end, that's your right, but you don't get to vote on next year's budget because it doesn't concern you. <laughs> Now, this past Saturday, Congresswoman Michelle Bachman announced that President Obama is sending arms to terrorists and said, rather than seeing this as a negative, we need to rejoice. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, his day is at hand. <laughs> of course, if Michelle is right and Jesus is on his way back, he'll be the first man she ever saw coming. <laughs> But she's not the only person in Washington who'd be more comfortable on American Horror Story. In an interview this week, <laughs> Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia says he believes the devil is a real person who's running around getting people to not believe in God. What can I say? I started to blush. <laughs> blush and laugh, because reasonable people, you know them. They usually see Michelle Bachman as a total loon, but Scalia as a serious intellectual, when actually they're the exact same idiot. <laughs> Scalia says in the interview that he's puzzled that the devil is all over the New Testament, but we don't see him around anymore. Oh yeah, back in the old days, Satan was like Miley Cyrus's tongue, he was everywhere. <laughs> but you know, this devil not being around anymore thing, it's, it's, it's not something that puzzles me. In fact, usually when I hear someone talking like this, it's because I'm dropping change in their cup. <laughs> but somehow the lack of Beazelbub sightings positively mystifies the leading legal mind in conservative America. Scalia says, in the Gospels, the devil is doing all sorts of things. He's making pigs run off cliffs. He's possessing people and whatnot. And that doesn't happen very much anymore. <laughs> I kept waiting for the transcript to say, ha ha, just fucking with you. <laughs> Pigs running off cliffs? Hey, leave the debt ceiling deniers out of it. <laughs> and what is Justice Scalia's theory as to why we don't see the devil anymore? Is it the logical answer that fictions like the devil are in the Bible because it was written before the age of science when humans didn't know where the sun went at night? and is obviously a reflection of mankind's thinking in his intellectual infancy. Of course not, that makes sense. <laughs> what Scalia said about the devil is, he used to be all over the New Testament. What happened to him? He got wilier. <laughs> Motherfucker. <laughs> of course, wilier. He may be evil, but he's always looking to improve himself. <laughs> Antonin Scalia once said that people like him, who adhere to a traditional beliefs, were, quote, regarded as simple-minded. We are, he said, fools for Christ. You know, whether you're fools for Christ or cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, <laughs> I really don't care why someone acts like a fool. Just that they do, and that when they do, we keep them away from decision-making. It would be one thing if Mr. Scalia sold pizza for a living, but... This is a man we go to to interpret our laws. It's like smelling a gas leak and calling an exorcist. <laughs> Antonin Scalia put George Bush in the White House, and he believes the devil went down to Georgia. 
He gets to decide when life begins, and he thinks evil is a person. You know, like a corporation. <laughs> Here's the problem with believing the devil exists. It means you see the world divided into teams of good and evil, and suspect the wily one, maybe on the side of them. And when you start seeing compromising with your opponents as a compromise with evil, well, there's your tea party. What does him always have a shame? Almost never does it have a name. Maybe it has a pitchfork, maybe it has a tail. But evil is alive and well. It might walk upright from out of the inferno. Maybe coming horseback through deep snow. It's ragged and fat. It's hungry as hell. In interviewing former presidential candidate Mitt Romney about GOP infighting, Meet the Press host David Gregory provided a false account of the Tea Party movement's origins. Isn't this the issue? Look, the reason there is a Tea Party right now goes back to President Bush. I actually think it goes back to the beginning of a more robust security state. After 9-11, the government expands to deal with security. There's also Medicare Part D. There's a lot of uh, government spending. And then there's ultimately the bailouts, which conservatives start to rebel against. And then President Obama continues that. Claiming the Tea Party has roots in opposition to George Bush, suggesting it has taken on both parties, is false. And Gregory's claim that the group protested Medicare Part D and the growing national security state after 9-11 is also pure fantasy. The movement emerged after CNBC host Rick Santelli called for Tea Party-style protests. He was livid over government plans to help distressed homeowners, whom he called losers, not Wall Street bailouts. That was in February 2009, a month after Obama's inauguration. Protests, including racist portrayals of the president as a monkey or witch doctor, and the town hall meetings targeting Democratic politicians with screaming tirades, followed, as did the involvement of conservative figures like Glenn Beck and Dick Armey. Flattering the Tea Party movement by portraying it as robustly confronting both parties didn't begin with Gregory, and it's unlikely to end there, as the movement has often seemed more popular with the pundits than with the public. My whole thing is we're never we have to use a agreed upon set of facts, but we're not doing that anymore. It's that right wing alternative reality bubble. It's that whole thing, right? And Chris and so here's Chris Hayes. So Chris Hayes gives a uh he's he had on a guy from the Heritage Foundation. No, no. Um the Heartland uh, Foundation, it's a different, not heritage. <laughs> oh, but, much better. Much but still, better. still very right wing. And here's what Chris Hayes says to him about his third lead. Cause, cause it's very frustrating. You know, like for instance, I go to a, uh, I went to on a Facebook post the other day that uh, a, a comedian who I know, 
who's conservative, and he was complaining about why won't Barack Obama negotiate? What kind of a... <laughs> and it's just like, are you... Pro so you're... I have to now pretend that I don't know reality if I want to talk to you? It's like, so this is what I'm talking about. It's so frustrating. It's like, it, it, we can debate ideas. We can't debate facts. And right. that's just so, it's so tiresome, and it's so, and that's why our country's in the place it is, and, and the news media won't set them straight anymore. So here's Chris, well, Chris Hayes has this guy from the Heartland Foundation, and he says this to, to this to him. Everybody lies to you. There's a whole cottage industry before the election to tell you you're winning an election, they're losing. They tell you your ideas are popular when they are not. They tell you your party is winning when it is not. They tell you the president is losing this and he looks terrible because people are storming the World War II world. At what point do grassroots conservatives stop allowing their leadership to lie to them? <laughs> wow, great question. Great qu I mean, he just said it to him. They've lied to you. There's a whole cottage industry Oh yeah. of them lying to you. That they lied to you that you're going to win the election. They lied to you that the polls are on your side. They lied to you that people hate Obamacare. They lied to you that people hate Obama. They lied to you that they're winning this debate. They lied to you that Obama's going to lose this debate. They 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 lied that they can defund defund Obama. They lie about everything. Right. They lied that this plan is theirs. That Obamacare is actually the Heritage Foundation. They lie about that. They lied about and so this is what I'm talking about. So. And by the way, the Tea, Tea Party officials lied about it being their plan to shut down the government. It yes. not only was it their plan, but it was the Heritage Foundation's plan again. Yes, you know that they their handlers. And in the you know in the election, um, Mitt Romney had to lie because he was uh, running against his own plan. <laughs> yes, say that. Yes, he couldn't. It was the most obvious thing in the world. That Obamacare is Romney care, you know. Yes. And and uh, uh, Romney uh, couldn't. He had to lie about that because he had to run. He said he was going to defund it on day one of his presidency, which was also a lie. Which was also a lie. He could have done that for, on the first day of his presidency. Yes. Uh, so here's what this guy says. So here's his response. I'm, you know, can I? Maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe I'll cut it out in editing. But it's very cathartic for me to hear someone on television say this to someone else's face. And that right. makes me think i got to start getting conservatives on this show because if I like watching someone dressed down a conservative, I'm sure people will enjoy watching me dressed down <laughs> a conservative. <laughs> and it would probably help our show and we get more listeners, uh, which, would all, which would help. So then, you know, maybe I wouldn't have to work when I'm 90. This is all I'm, this is, this is, this is all I'm thinking about the future. Yeah. So, uh, so here, not, th not that I consider this work, although it is a shit ton. Okay, here we go. <laughs> so let's listen to Chris Hayes again. Everybody lies to you. There's a whole cottage industry before the election to tell you you're winning an election. They're losing. They tell you your ideas are popular when they are not. They tell you your party is winning when it is not. They tell you the president is losing this and he looks terrible because people are storming the World War II world. At what point do grassroots conservatives stop allowing their leadership to lie to them? Okay. And I was like, I, I, I was like, what lie is this guy going to tell now, right? Because he can't just say you're right. We're right. The, our leaders, our, our whole party is just bankrupt and corrupt. We're just floundering. We're all lying to each other. He can't say right. that. He can't say that, can he, Frank? Well, let's see. Well, I think he, uh, you know, maybe he might say. Uh Actually, uh, I found those lies very comforting. <laughs> <laughs> Much like my religion. Okay, here, here he goes. Here he goes. 
Well, I think that you have to keep in mind the leadership lies to themselves as well. They lie to themselves about their ability to control the situation. They lie to themselves about the ability to offer an alternative approach from the Senate side that could get taken up by the House at the get-go. I think that essentially you're seeing a lot of people who are lying to each other about the nature of the uh, policies and the nature of the political strategy that they're employing. And what the f***? So he's just saying, yeah, we're all lying. I did not see that coming. Did that was a he, tasty fake. That well, that's, was amazing. That's what I said. I go, well, he can't just say, yeah, we're all lying to ourselves. Hey, that's exactly what he said. That's yeah. So this guy is really, is this, yes, this guy's all, a conservative? And he's still a conservative. After saying that. And he's still going to vote for those people. We're, we're, we're so, our, our ideas are so bankrupt. Because they have no ideas. They have no, they, I, they, I, what, I, what legislation have the Republicans passed in the House since they took over the House? That, that have uh, any consequence? They voted to repeal Obamacare 40 times. And what else have they passed? Have they got a jobs bill? Have they, nothing. They've done nothing to do anything. They haven't fixed a single problem. Because that's not how they see government. Government isn't an instrument to fix problems. But I, I Private love, sector fixes problems, and government just stays out of the way. I, I love that his idea was, uh, yes, they've been lying to me, but they've been lying to themselves as well. Yes. Like, what? That's yes. the craziest thing I've yes. ever... Oh, my God. Let's remember, hey, they're lying to themselves. So apparently it's it's easier for him to stomach if the people, he's, if his leaders of his party and movement are also bullshit. Yeah, it's our, it's, yeah, I, it's it's almost as if like uh, Chris Hayes asked that whole question about when are you going to stop lying to each other, and then his response was, "Isn't it just like a liberal to think we don't lie nearly as much as we do?" <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just like what, 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 what if we don't have our lies? What do we have? You know, that's what he's really saying. What, else, what do we have if we don't have our lives? What are we, what are we supposed to say? The truth? Trickle-down economics doesn't work? Cut, tax cuts for millionaires doesn't actually create jobs? What, what, what are they supposed to say? The Iraq war was a failure? Was it a legal war? What are they supposed to say? Bush bankrupted the Treasury with the Bush tax cut? What are they supposed to say? <laughs> what truth? Ronald Reagan actually started this country on a slow downward roll? By increase the income disparity between rich and poor to now we're at the Gilded Age levels after 30 years of Reaganomics. What are they supposed to say? Ooh, what you say? Mm, that you only meant well, but of course you did. Ooh, what you say? Mm, that it's all for the best, because it is. I, I was so wrong, wrong, was so long, long, only trying to please myself. myself. Girl, I So let me in, give me another chance to really be your man. Cause when the roof caved in and the truth came out, I just didn't know what to do. Let's hear, speaking of uh, humanitarian thoughts, um, John Stossel, apparently he does this every uh, year around this time, because it's the time of charity and giving. But do you know where that quarter or one dollar you give on the street to a homeless person might end up? Well, John Stossel. Also, hint, in this particular scenario, it goes to John Stossel. Well, John Stossel donned a beard. And uh, you will now hear uh, some clips of him on the street wearing a beard. 
to get a sense of what it's like to be homeless. It is the season to be giving. But as John Stossel demonstrates in tonight's episode of Stossel, not everyone in every organization is worthy of your charity. Some are actually scammers. I put on a fake beard and tried begging in New York City. You help me, ma'am? People gave me money. They gave me money when my cardboard sign said homeless and cold. And they even gave when I changed it to need a beer. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. When we asked givers why they gave, people said things like this. I don't know, that guy looked pretty needy, I suppose. I just begged for an hour, but I did well. If I did this for an eight-hour day, I would have made 90 bucks. 23,000 for a year. Tax-free. So who should you donate to? Let's talk to the guy who Pause is it for real. one second. So here he is rejoicing at the fact that he made... Amateurized over the course of an entire year, $23,000 tax-free. Now, of course, this is just beyond, uh, it really is insane. He was given uh, $11 over the course of an hour. Um, now, there are, in fact, uh, there's only one scientific survey, apparently, of panhandlers found that the vast majority made closer to $25 dollars uh, per day or less. Because you know what happens? Most people who panhandle and are homeless are not just out there for an hour. So after eight hours, your efficiency in asking for money probably goes down. And after days of living on the streets, in fact, you probably, uh, it becomes a little bit harder for you to, to get this money. They generally make about $9,000 a year, which of course is extremely difficult or even $23,000, even if it's tax-free, to live off of in New York City. Uh, yeah, I mean, even in that scenario of someone making that much money, if you're making that much money, you're likely panhandling in a big city, which means the costs of everything to get out of homelessness is more. It's just absurd. All right, let's continue. Homeless, we're talking about Fox Business host John Sossel. John, good morning to you. Good morning. Um, are you suggesting that the people who are begging for money on the streets, we should not give them money? Yes, and it's not I who am suggesting that. The people who work with the homeless say don't give them money. It's, you're, it's a bad thing. You're an enabler. You're enabling their alcohol or their drug habit. And far better to, if you really think they're for real, and most are not, to try to help them get to one of the social service agencies. Mm -hmm. but I think some Pause do. it here. Now, John Stossel has no idea if these people are for real. But I can guarantee you this. These people are real human beings. That I can guarantee you. And I don't know what for real means. That same study said that 94% of people use that money for food. But they are really actually begging on the street. Now, it does seem possible that some percentage of these people are really living the high life. They beg for money. They go back and they day trade with it on the weekends. And they have a home in Florida and a home at the Hamptons. And they have a the high rise and they're just going out like, so long, Bernie uh, doorman. I'm going out to panhandle today. It's possible. 
That some infinitesimally small percentage of those people. But I can guarantee you that those are real human beings who are really sitting out there in the frigid cold, who are really putting their hand out and asking for money. So the idea that these people aren't for real, I don't know what that means. The idea that they aren't in any way financially challenged, I don't know what that means. It just means, oh, I do know what it means. It means uh, Stossel is an a-hole. Continue with this. Like seeing exactly where their money is going. And this actually brings me to the next point. You say that there are a ton of charities out there that really aren't putting their money uh, where their mouth is, right? So you have ones that we should Some possibly spend avoid. most of the money on fundraising and officers' salaries. And I give to charities that I can observe personally. Now, pause it. This is a valid issue. Are you giving to a charity that is using a, uh, the great uh, bulk of a percentage of the money that comes in to the people who are needy? Notice how Stossel conflates these things. But also notice how Stossel is not doing a groundbreaking report on the incredible amount of fraud and mismanagement in charities. How many weeks and months and years has Fox dedicated to the incredible amount of fraud, 1% in Medicare, 1% in Social Security disability. Yet here he's got all these big stories of these charities that are supposed to step in, right? We don't need a, a government to do this. Where's all the stories on the incredible fraud and waste in charity? Now, that's just a sidelight. What's really more interesting about this story is I wore a beard, a fake beard. No, knowing how Fox News works, do you think they purposely conflated these two stories so people wouldn't donate, period, and just learn? Like, it would no, tell them to just hold their money? No, they just basically say that the whole gist of this entire conservative project is that when you're walking down the street or in the course of your day, if you come across somebody who is down on their luck in any way, we're going to give you a whole toolkit to not for once feel guilty or that we should be doing something about this or to feel anything other than you are in the right you in fact are the one who's being oppressed so this is why maybe this is why this is why sarah palin says this government debt is like slavery because god forbid there should be anti any cohort of people in the country or in our history who has suffered more than the conservative when you walk down the street, when you see a homeless person who is begging for money, the conservatives want to teach you that the proper response is to feel bad for yourself. That you are the one being oppressed by this person asking me for money. That you are the one being oppressed by the fact that some liberals want to get together and have government do something about this. It is you who is suffering. And if you give charity, you are blessed, but you're still being oppressed by even some of these charities. That's what this is. That's what this whole racket is. There's no other agenda just to make a-holes feel better about themselves. I don't, Is there any more of that to the sound or do we even care? Forget it. I don't even want to hear any more of that. Oh, no. You know what, though? It, actually, maybe we should play another 30 seconds. All right, play another 30 seconds. Something else comes up that you'll, you'll want to hit on.
Also, which is one way to check, sure. and uh, the, there are also charity rating services like Charity Navigator and the Better Business okay. Bureau, and they're, they help, but it's not yeah. perfect. They get conned, too. What are some of your favorites? Well, I give to Central Park Conservancy, because I can see they do a good job taking care of this park when the government let it go to sea. Pause it. I give he gives to a private public thing that basically just makes Central Park uh, pretty for rich people. Do you think that includes and, kicking out the homeless? And we've got it. It also helps us kick out the homeless people from there. To a group called Doe Fund, Men in Blue, Ready, Willing, and Able. You've seen them around here. They, they rehab ex-cons, and I, I watched them work, and I could see that, that they, they walk with spring in their step. And they must be doing a good job. I checked it. Oh, there you go. Spring in the step. If, if only the homeless had more spring in their step. Today I'm a screamer, and as you can see, a screamer's an artist of highest degree. And it's all me own work from my own memory. Jim Jiminy, Jim Jiminy, Jim Jim Jeroo. I draws what I likes, and I likes what I drew. Do I ask of you? But me cap would be glad of a copper or two. Me cap would be glad of a copper or two. The state of Illinois uh, is a bright, bright, bright blue state, right? In every one of the previous six presidential elections, going back to 1992, Illinois voted handily for the Democratic candidate for president. In last year's presidential election, President Obama won in his home state of Illinois by 17 points. And that does not mean there are no Republican areas and no Republican members of Congress in Illinois. There are plenty of conservative parts of the state, but statewide, Illinois is very blue, which makes it all the more amazing that Illinois has a senator. But of course, senators are elected statewide. Illinois has a senator who is a Republican. Senator Mark Kirk was elected to fill the seat that was once held by President Obama after the Rod Blagojevich scandal of the governor essentially trying to sell that seat, the scandal that ultimately put Governor Blagojevich in prison. Uh, Republican Mark Kirk is the man who eventually got that seat. Senator Kirk is probably best known for the major health challenges that he has survived since becoming a senator. Senator Kirk suffered a major stroke in January 2012, it took him an entire year to recover enough to relearn how to walk. You might remember this very moving, dramatic footage of him returning to work for the first time, walking with great difficulty up the Capitol steps, where he was greeted by Vice President Joe Biden and his fellow senator from Illinois, Dick Durbin, uh, and by his friend, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. But while Senator Mark Kirk has been dealing with the physical rigors of coming back from that devastating stroke, he has also been fully functional as a senator. And, and he's been very interesting as a senator because Mark Kirk is turning out to be not a very predictable guy. He is a conservative in a lot of the traditional senses. He's anti-regulation, an anti-tax anti guy. He's a hawk on foreign policy. He's supported privatizing Social Security. But he also sometimes takes positions where it's just Senator Mark Kirk and the Democrats, or it's just Senator Mark Kirk and a handful of other Republicans who are brave enough to defy their party and side with the Democrats. 
Like, for example, on the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, Senator Kirk was uh, not just one of the ten Republicans who crossed party lines in order to support that anti-discrimination measure. He was a co-sponsor of the legislation. His very first speech on the floor of the Senate, once he came back after having had a stroke, was speaking in favor of that non-discrimination act. He is in the thumbs-up column on the issue of gay rights and non-discrimination. And a really, really interesting thing happened in the last couple of days involving Senator Mark Kirk's office. In his home state of Illinois, there is a group called the World Congress of Families. They're headquartered in Rockford, Illinois. And the World Congress of Families is not just an anti-gay group. They're not a run-of-the-mill anti-gay group. They are a super mega double dutch, really emphatically anti-gay group. When Russia started passing all of its recent anti-gay legislation that has alarmed the whole world about Russia taking this stark anti-gay turn right before they host the Winter Olympics, it was the World Congress of Families in Rockford, Illinois, that was not just applauding what Russia was doing. They started sending American anti-gay activists to go over to Moscow to advise Russia on, on how to improve their anti-gay legislation, to praise Russia for what they were doing, to encourage them to do more. As a reward or a sign of support for how anti-gay Russia has become, the World Congress of Families is planning on holding an international summit next year at the Kremlin, specifically because they are so psyched that Russia hates gays so much more than they used to. So the World Congress of Families is based in Illinois, in Mark Kirk's home state. And apparently, if you're an interest group of some kind, and your group would like to hold a meeting in one of the rooms at the U.S. Capitol, you just call up one of your home state senators and ask if they will book the room for you. I didn't think I knew that it happened this way, but apparently this is a very common practice. And it's the kind of thing that happens frequently enough that it's just handled at the staff level as a relatively routine matter. And so, you know, Mark Kirk's office got the call. Okay, you're the World Congress of Families? Okay, that's a fairly anodyne-sounding name. They called Senator Kirk's office. Through his staff, they booked meeting space at the United States Capitol for today. The meeting they were planning on holding in the Capitol was specifically to praise how anti-gay Russia has become and to strategize for how to get that kind of Russian-style anti-gay stuff going on over here. How to bring anti-gay policies from places like Russia, also, say, Uganda... Other places that are real success stories for tormenting and abusing their gay populations. How can we use those examples to inspire similar good work for our country here in Washington, D.C.? That was the subject of the meeting. Senator Kirk's office had initially booked them that room for that meeting in the U.S. Capitol. But then they realized who this group was. The Google befell them. The senator's staff moved, once they realized who these guys were, the senator's staff, on their own recognizance, moved to unhelp this group, to rescind the offer of booking this room for them at the U.S. Capitol. They called the group and told them it could not happen. So, this is interesting, right? I mean, this is a home state group, and this is a Republican senator, but Senator Kirk is not like that on these issues. And his office could not have been clearer about this issue once they realized who this group was and what was going on. Uh, his office spoke with BuzzFeed about this whole kerfuffle last night. BuzzFeed broke the story. Lester Fetter there did. The statement from Mark Kirk's office was very blunt and very direct. Quote, Senator Kirk does not affiliate with groups that discriminate. Well, the specific group that does discriminate here, which Senator Kirk uninvited from the Capitol, 
they were very, very angry about him uninviting them from the Capitol. They said, quote, obviously, obviously, Senator Kirk does not care about families and children and freedom. And he has chosen to side with the policies of decline and death and disease promoted by the sexual radicals. Shame on you, Senator Mark Kirk, for allowing vocal radical sexual minorities to drown out the voices of the natural family. One of the anti-gay activists who was due to speak at the meeting today went even further and called Senator Kirk a coward for this decision. A coward. So that all went down last night. BuzzFeed broke the story, got the statement from Senator Kirk's office. The group was uninvited. That was all last night. Today, that group, that anti-gay group who called Senator Mark Kirk a coward and everything, uh, they did have their meeting at the U.S. Capitol. Because even though Mark Kirk rescinded his offer to set up a room for them when he realized who they were, another congressional Republican decided to intervene, decided to help this group get another room so they could still have that meeting. And the member of Congress who did that is House Speaker John Boehner. What? I expected it to be like maybe, I don't know, Louis Gohmert or Michelle Bachman, the ghost of Jesse Helms maybe. But the actual Speaker of the House, John Boehner, stepped up personally to make sure that that anti-gay group was well taken care of today at the United States Capitol. Your tax dollars at work. He's third in line to the presidency. What, Fred Phelps and the Westboro Baptist Church didn't need to use that room at that time? We didn't have any extra space for them? John Boehner also made news this week by repeating his insistence that he will not allow the Employment Non-Discrimination Act to come up for a vote in the House. This is that bill about employment discrimination that Mark Kirk co-sponsored. Right now, legally, you can't discriminate in employment in this country on the basis of race, gender, age, religion, national origin, disability, or genetic information. ENDA, the non-discrimination bill, that's the bill that would add sexual orientation and gender identity to that list of things on which you can, a list of bases on which you cannot discriminate. Right now, in the majority of American states, if your boss hears that you're gay or decides that he or she thinks that you're gay, your boss can fire you on the spot for that reason and that reason alone. And you have no legal recourse in a majority of American states. The Senate overwhelmingly passed a bill to fix that, with every Democrat voting in favor of it and with 10 Republican senators, including Mark Kirk, crossing the aisle to defeat the Republican Party's filibuster against it. They voted for it to become law. It got a big vote, 64 yes votes. But it never will become law as long as John Boehner will not allow it to be voted on in the House, and he says that that is his decision. If that bill did come up for a vote in the House, it would almost certainly pass. It is a really popular thing. Not only did it get 64 votes in the U.S. Senate, look at the public polling on this. Overall, 73% of Americans favor passing a law protecting gay people against workplace discrimination. It's favored by a huge proportion of Democrats and a huge proportion of independents and also by a really big proportion of Republicans. 60% of Republican voters support this. A big, bright, clear majority of Republican voters wants our country to have a law like this. But Republicans in Congress won't let it happen. And it turns out that that exact dynamic holds on a bunch of things right now in Washington. John Boehner again this week insisted that he would also not allow a vote on immigration reform. And just like the non-discrimination bill, immigration reform is super, super, super popular. 
It passed the United States Senate with 14 Republican senators crossing the aisle to vote with the Democrats on it. It beat the Republican filibuster handily. That's a huge vote in the Senate for immigration reform, 68 votes. That shows you how non-controversial and middle of the road that bill was. They had to make it that non-controversial and middle of the road so it could pass with a two-to-one margin. I mean, overall, huge majorities of Americans support immigration reform. 87% support reforming immigration and allowing a pathway to citizenship for immigrants who are here illegally. Democrats, independents, and Republicans are virtually identical in their huge, look at that, overwhelming support for that big reform. There was just new polling specifically in Republican swing districts. This was a new poll across 20 districts where Republicans are the representatives from those districts. And 76% of the people in those districts favor the pathway to citizenship, which is supposedly the most controversial part of immigration reform. So the president surely wants it. The Senate wants it. Democrats in Congress want it. Democratic voters want it. Independent voters want it. And Republican voters want it. Who doesn't want it? Oh, you guys. The only people who do not want it are John Boehner and presumably some other House Republicans. But they're against everybody else in the country. They are completely against public opinion on this issue, including the public opinion of Republicans. They're also completely against public opinion on the issue of the minimum wage. Overall, the number of people who say they want to raise the minimum wage is 76%. Support for the minimum wage is massive among Democrats and independents and among Republicans. But even though their own voters support it, Republicans in Congress will not let it happen. On background checks for guns, right? Background checks for guns are supported by 81% of Americans, broadly speaking. Background checks had huge support among Democrats, among independents, and look, among Republicans. Expanded background checks for gun purchases are supported by gun owners. Expanded background checks are supported by NRA members. But these guys in Congress, the Republicans in Congress, say no. Remember the Buffett rule that said billionaires shouldn't pay lower tax rates than their secretaries? Democrats support that. Independents support that. Republicans support that. It's just the Republicans in Congress who say no, even though their own voters like the idea. I raised the issue of the, the Buffett rule because supposedly after the government shutdown, remember what we were going to start working on? We were going to start working on a grand bargain. What's our tax policy going to be? What's our budget going to be? It's all supposed to be about debating policy measures, like, for example, the Buffett rule, which is very, very popular even among Republican voters. But Republicans in Congress will not allow an issue like that to even be voted on, even though their own voters want it. And when you start looking at this, when you start looking at these public opinion polls on issue after issue after issue after issue, this is what is called a pattern. In representative democracy, if you are in elected office, and you pursue policies that are very unpopular, and you block policies that are very popular, something is supposed to happen to you. It's like the elephant in the elephant's room. Republican policy ideas, both in terms of what they like, but especially what they don't like, Republican policy ideas are very, 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 very strongly at odds with the views of the American people with even most Republican voters. They believe they have one winning issue on health reform, where their opposition to the president's health reform law is closer to public opinion on that issue, which of course is still in flux. They think it's closer on that issue than it is on every other major policy issue before the country right now, where they stand against the rule of the public and even the rule of their own voters.
Why don't they pay a higher cost for that? And why haven't Democrats figured out a way to make them pay a higher cost from that? Now, Frank Luntz is the top Republican pollster. For decades, he's been coming up with different words uh, to trick the American people into voting for tax cuts for the rich and for more wars and for the entire Republican agenda, which they don't agree with. Now, Frank Luntz knows that they don't agree with that. He's the best pollster the Republicans have. He's actually one of the best pollsters in the country. So he does the polls every day, and he goes, if he asks the question in a normal way, he knows the American people are totally center-left. That's how they answer it. They want to protect Social Security and Medicare. They don't want to go into wars. You name a question, and he knows that they do not wind up on the conservative side. They wind up on the liberal side. So he's been playing with words for over 20 years. So it's not an estate tax. It's a death tax. Yeah, games like that, right? Apparently, he's run out of answers. There's no more games left. It's the end of bullshit road, okay? We've come to the very end of that cul-de-sac. So Frank Luntz has decided, we're in trouble, dog. The Atlantic did a story on him. Molly Ball talked to him. And he, they explained, the crisis began, he says, after last year's presidential election, when Luntz became profoundly depressed. He apparently said, I'm not good enough, and I hate that. I have come to the extent of my capabilities, and this is not false modesty. I think I'm pretty good, but not good enough. Now, look, you've got to understand something. He's not just being the opposite of Stuart Smalley. Okay, God damn it, I'm just not good enough. He's being honest for the first time in his life. He's like, look, look, you don't get it, man. I've been playing this game for a long time. I got paid millions and millions of dollars to play this game. I'm really good. But I can't trick them anymore. You know, when we started getting to the end, it was when Frank Luntz said, and this was about a year ago, and I went nuts about this, because I thought it was a big deal, and apparently he thought it was a big deal too. When the word capitalism started polling badly, and the word socialism started polling well, and he was like, whoa. <laughs> he, he told Republicans, stop saying middle class. Every time you say middle class, people want to vote Democrat, not Republican. Okay, Stop talking about capitalism. And then he got to 2012, and he ran out of things to talk about. He's like, we, we trickle-down economics. Well, now people know, man. Before, when we said trickle-down economics, people were like, oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. He's like, but all it's done is trickle all over their head for the last 30 years. So, yeah, I know. A lot of the people can be tricked a lot of the times, but apparently they can't be tricked this many times. He says, quote, the old Frank Luntz was sure, as the article explains, he could invent slogans to sell the righteous conservative path of personal responsibility and free markets to anyone. The new Frank Luntz fears that is no longer the case, and it's driving him crazy. Now, my favorite quote from the article. So what does a despondent Republican pollster do? Finally, 
six weeks after the election, during a meeting of his consulting company in Las Vegas. He fell apart. Leaving his employees behind, he flew back to his mansion in Los Angeles, where he stayed for three weeks, barely going outside or talking to anyone. Is he going to be all right? Was he stuck in that mansion all by himself for three weeks? Oh, golly gee, I feel so bad. (laughs) He had to run back to his mansion. (laughs) Hey, you know what? We're making progress. We've driven the Republicans back into their mansions. (laughs) We've reached the great divide. Turns out it's where we all unite For there is no earthly force that can untie The ties that bind We stand for equality and peace We stand for love and unity We stand for wisdom and living free We stand for all humanity One of the biggest stars of the North Carolina Republican Party is in very hot water tonight. After an interview he gave to Politico, Tom Tillis, North Carolina's Republican Speaker of the House, is the establishment-backed candidate to take on Democratic incumbent Senator Kay Hagan in her quest for re-election next year. Tillis told Politico that he thinks, quote, for the most part, what I see from the folks who are opposing our agenda is whining coming from losers. North Carolina has perhaps the most aggressive right-wing government in America at the moment, thanks to a Republican governor, state house, and Senate that have ran through a voter ID law that prompted a Justice Department lawsuit, passed and signed to law a restrictive anti-abortion bill, passed a tax plan redistributing wealth to the rich, and cut education by half a billion dollars. The hard right shift sparked a movement called Moral Mondays in which the people that Tillis deems losers made their opposition known on a weekly basis. This also led to a collapse in the approval rating of North Carolina Governor Pat McCrory and the GOP-controlled state legislature while providing a boost Democrat Kay Hagan in her quest for re-election to the Senate. But this is a story that is about more than just one North Carolina Republican's intemperate comments. Because the attitude embedded in his comments extends far beyond his state's borders. There are 47% of the people who vote for the president no matter what. All right, there are 47% who are with him, who are dependent upon government, who believe that, that they are victims, who believe that government has a responsibility to care for them, who believe that they are entitled to health care, to food, to housing, to you name it. But that's, that's an entitlement, and the government should give it to them. To many, that was the moment that lost Mitt Romney the 2012 election. Damage control, Mitt Romney fighting back over that secretly recorded videotape and what he said about the 47%. And if it wasn't that gaffe that cost Mitt Romney the election, the belief that the country is divided into virtuous, productive makers up against the lazy, vicious takers. And that's where Romney's running mate comes in. Right now, about 60% of the American people 
get more benefits and dollar value from the federal government than they pay back in taxes. We're coming to a country where we're getting more and more takers than makers in America. We could become a society where the net majority of Americans are takers, not makers. We could quickly become a country of a net majority of takers versus makers. A majority of takers versus makers. Takers versus makers. We are on this tipping point where more and more people are becoming net takers than makers in America. It's a function of the tipping point of more and more people becoming takers versus makers in America. But those weren't just slip-ups. Those were the two most powerful Republicans at the time expressing what has become the central tenet of modern conservatism. We're throwing the handouts out. Basically, two classes. Victims, that is, taxpayers, productive people, and parasites. The uh, moocher class out there. There are 50% of the voting public who want stuff. They want things. And who is going to give them things? Remember, the rant that launched the Tea Party that gave us our current political mess wasn't about big banks or government waste. It was about foreclosure victims. The government is promoting bad behavior. The battle hymn of the Tea Party movement was specifically about the government bailing out the, quote, losers. How about this, President and New Administration? Why don't you put up a website to have people vote on the internet as a referendum to see if we really want to subsidize the losers' mortgages? But you see, the conservative movement is strongest politically when it manages to convince average working Americans that it's actually on their side. The biggest divide we have in this country is between entrenched politicians in Washington of both parties. And the American people. Conservatism is at its most effective, at its most populist. But during the Obama era, we've seen a movement increasingly convinced that it might not be on the side of a majority of Americans. That maybe, just maybe, it represents a dwindling minority of hardworking Americans against a sea of lazy, welfare-seeking masses. Mr. President, I don't oppose your plans because I want to protect the rich. I oppose your plans because I want to protect my neighbors. Hardworking, middle-class Americans who don't need us to come up with a plan to grow the government. They need a plan to grow the middle class. And the contempt and cruelty of that message has real policy implications. Like kicking 1.3 million people off of unemployment insurance for no reason, rejecting the Medicaid expansion, denying health insurance to nearly 5 million people just out of spite, cutting $40 billion from the food stamp program, kicking an estimated 5 million people, including children, elderly, disabled, and working people off the program without skipping a beat. The modern Republican Party is one that is convinced in its deep, dark heart that it does not represent the majority of Americans. And it is quickly becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. Hi, Jay. This is Gavin from Richmond, Virginia. I just called to thank you for all your hard work and to expand on the points raised about corporate amorality. Uh, Dave sounds like he's given this a lot of thought, which I think is commendable, but I would like to address what I see as a problem with his argument. Corporations are amoral. 
Morality implies responsibility. Once you have a moral code, you are left with a responsibility to make certain decisions over others and behave in certain ways. So why do we say corporations are amoral? Corporations have the explicit responsibility to maximize shareholder value and therefore cannot weigh questions that typical human moral codes are built around. Just as a robot cannot weigh moral questions, corporations have fiduciary responsibility to maximize shareholder value. Take, for instance, a situation where a manager decides consciously to take on a 5% increase in cost to avoid dumping toxic waste into a public waterway. If he knew that there would be, not be legal or PR ramifications, he would have failed in his duties to shareholders. This may seem very hypothetical or unrealistic, but these types of moral dilemmas come up constantly in business. Working for a corporation, I often find myself with responsibilities that are contrary to how I would choose to conduct business. To drive this point home, think about Chick-fil-A. They are not a corporation and often address moral issues. What shareholder-owned company gives its employees Sundays off or makes bigoted statements on company letterhead? Governments, on the other hand, serve the exact opposite purpose. Besides a handful of true hereditary mon uh, monarchies left in the world, all governments at least claim a mandate based on cultural values. Our government explicitly defended its legitimacy by declaring all men equal with rights to liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness. Whether or not you consider any of our founders moral men, you must admit the point is a moral argument. Similarly, theocracies around the world, by their very nature, at least claim to put morality above all else, as misguided as we may see those efforts. In the West, questions of morality dominate public debate in all democracies and are formalized through justice systems. So when the powerful corrupt our government institutions, it does not make those actions amoral. They are immoral because they deflect or dodge judgment from the people who, as David would say, have souls and can judge these things. That's all I wanted to say. Keep up the great work. Uh, in, particularly, uh, in particular, I uh, appreciated the trans show. Uh, that wasn't even on my radar. So I thank you for that. Have a good one. A quick correction here. The caller said that Chick-fil-A is not a corporation. What I believe he meant is that Chick-fil-A is not a publicly traded corporation. They are, in fact, a privately held company, which is precisely why they feel they have the freedom to stay closed on Sundays and say terrible things about gay people because they don't have that fiduciary responsibility to their stockholders. Hey, Jay, it's Colin from Cleveland. Just finished the last episode on racism, and I have to tell you, another great episode as always. Um, going along the lines of that episode, it's a little long to play on the show, but I would encourage the listeners to look up Tim Weiss on YouTube, and he's got a great speech, and it's entitled The Birth of the White Race, and it uh, really talks about the birth of institutionalized racism here in America, and I think he really breaks it down very simplistic where it's hard for anyone not to understand how and why it all started. So, Jay, keep up the great work. Bye. Good morning, Jay. This is Professor Rambo from Georgia. I love the show. I'm calling in about the episode about stopping the bridge. I'm, I'm still real stuck on the fence about this issue, man. I'm, I'm a young black male. I've been stopped numerous times by cops. I mean, I don't... I don't like cops at and you know, I'm, I'm actually working in a law enforcement type facility right now. But, um, I don't know. I'm just, I guess the reason why I'm stuck in the fence is because of my role in law enforcement, um, and you know, my run-ins with the law early in my life. And being, I'm very politically active. You know, I write a blog. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm part of, you know, I protest that business and stuff. You know, I like uh, my, my major in college is political science. 
it just seems like a, a lot of times it's like this kind of white man's guilt when it comes to when it comes to this stuff. And what, what I mean by white man's guilt is a lot of these people who are like, all oh, black men aren't criminals, basic people aren't criminals, um, it's wrong for these cops to go and arrest these guys, yada, yada, yada. These are the same people who won't go inside the ghettos where these people live, you know, where I grew up at. These are the same people who lock their door as they're riding through Harlem, who lock their door as they're riding through Atlanta, who lock their door as they ride to Chicago. But it's like, you know, on your, uh, you know, on your talk show, not your talk show, but you know, this thing on someone's talk show, they'll be like, oh, Fox News is racist, this, that, and third. The Washington Post is racist, this, that, and third. You know, all black men and criminals. And then when they're leaving the talk show, heading home, they're, they're avoiding the very neighborhoods of the people they're sitting here protecting. It, make, it makes no sense to me. It's kind of like you want to you wanna save black guys, but at the same time, are scared of black guys. You know, it's like you want to save these Latino youth, but at the same time, scared of Latino youth. I just really don't think you can play the same field. You know, I just don't think you can... um. You know, be against stop and frisk, be against racial profiling, but then while you're going, you know, while you're approaching a, a four-way stop, you're looking at these men on the corner, racial profile level, like your door. So it's like you either love them or you hate them. They just be honest with yourself. And I think a lot of the time people get to this to this point where they're like, oh man, you know, I'm living for save the world, save the world, save black people. But they, they but, but but they don't have any black friends. They've never been to a black bar. They've never been to see a black basketball game at a black court in a black neighborhood. It's like, you know, come on, man. But um, that, that that's really about it. I just want to enjoy your show, and um, I have to give you credit. You know, as a, as a young white guy yourself, you, you know, you you do a lot of good work for you know for us black people. You really speak about the issues that that we support the you know, racial profiling, education, um, neighborhoods, inequality. So um. Really appreciate what you do, Jay. Have a great day. Keep up the good work. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Uh, so I have some reminders, but first, bad news. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to take one episode off from the show. This is totally against my will. I wish this didn't have to happen, but my computer has to go into the shop, uh, not just for like a day to get something fixed, but apparently three to five days. And my original plan was actually to pre-produce a show and have it sort of in, in the queue ready to go so that it could be published even without my computer there. But as it turns out, uh, I cannot do that because uh, t- t- just as I was experiencing today while making today's show, uh, things are, are working so poorly that I don't know if it's going to make it another episode. I learned just last week that I need my logic board replaced. And if you're not familiar with that one, uh, the logic board is the part that if you are familiar what it is and you hear that it needs to be replaced, your response is, oh, no, because it turns out it takes uh, a while. It's not the easiest thing to replace and it's expensive. So that's what's happening this week. I, I'm, I just figured the best thing to do is drop it off at the beginning of the week, hope to get it back by the end of the week. So I hope to be back uh, with a brand new show by Friday. In the meantime, I'll put out a rerun, but apologies to everyone. Yeah, I, I wish there was a way around it, but it's it's running like so slow, it's practically unusable. So you can you can imagine I haven't been having a, a really fun time dealing with it. On to regular reminders. 
this is the last chance I get to remind you that the Stitcher Awards are going, so you can vote every day until January 13th. Uh, please keep those votes coming in, and thanks to everyone who has been voting already. Uh, I, I, I think we can win the news and politics category, and that would be very exciting. Second set of thanks to go out. Polar Bear Plunge fundraising is still going on. Uh, I'm going to be jumping in the Potomac River on the 25th of January because I'm trying to raise $1,500 to give to uh, the Chesapeake Climate Action Network. And I already have Karen Ball, Gretchen Garnett, and Liz Gordon to thank for their donations. Well on my way. Um, but yeah, pl please keep those donations coming in. I used to work at the Chesapeake Climate Action Network. They're a great organization. I know that, you know, they're, they're a group worth giving money to. So the easiest way to find that page is just to go to bestoftheleft.com. There's a big banner at the top. It says Polar Bear Plunge. You can't miss it. You can give your donations there. And of course, there's also a link to the sticker awards on the same page. So, you know, two birds with one stone. Now, finally today, I wanted to respond to that. Uh, the last voicemail that we heard uh, talking about stop and frisk. White people speak out against stop and frisk, but then in their personal lives, they are still afraid of black people. And that, that's, you know, a, a sort of hypocrisy going on there. And I don't think that that's a, a real accurate accusation to be thrown out because I don't uh, speak out against stop and frisk because it disproportionately affects people of color. Stop and frisk is wrong and it disproportionately affects people of color, not because it disproportionately affects people of color. So, I mean, stop and frisk is unlawful searches and seizures without probable cause. I mean, that's straight up against the Fourth Amendment. So it's wrong no matter who it happens to. Now, it happens also to be carried out in a racist way, which disproportionately affects people of color. So that's the angle that, you know, we often talk about it from because if at least this unconstitutional procedure was being uh, performed on everyone evenly, then, you know, it would still be terrible, but at least it wouldn't also be racist. But because it's both, it makes it that much more egregious. So so that's the angle that we, we talk about it from. But I, it's, you know, you can say that stop and frisk is wrong and be scared out of your mind to black people, and that's not necessarily a contradiction. So uh, if you have thoughts on that, let me know. Uh, the number 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestoftheleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame. How we get so trained